Good morning. How is everyone? Good. Good to see you all. We're going to be uh, wrapping up 2 Thessalonians today. We'll be uh, heading into, in a few weeks, into the Old Testament for a bit. So we'll be uh, attacking, uh, in a positive way, a book of the Old Testament and kind of working through it. So that'll be fun. Um, and please, as Justice said, do be praying for us as we head out to camp this week. Uh, how many um, campers do we have going, Justice? Twenty-four. All right, that's awesome. So be praying for them. Be praying for the staff. Um, it it um, it looks like we we have a really a really good group going, and we covet your prayers for God to do His work. Amen. With that, let's pray, and then we will get into the Word. Father, we do pray for the summer camp that uh, some of us are heading to tomorrow. I pray that you would uh, grab a hold of everyone's heart that week that doesn't know you. Uh, set it fast upon you. Show them your grace and mercy um, very clearly by the power of your spirit. Grab a hold of their hearts. I pray for those that do know you already that it would be a week of uh, spiritual growth and that they would hear from you, Lord. Uh, I pray you'd give wisdom to the counselors that are going to be um, meeting with their different campers. Uh, wisdom from above to minister to the campers' hearts, Lord. Thanks for the privilege of us going to Logan Valley. Um, thanks for Dave and Sue who run Logan Valley. I pray your blessing upon them and upon Logan Valley. Lord, we pray, God, um, for the church at large that uh, today, as people worship you across this land and across this world, uh, that your word would be faithfully preached from the pulpits. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Belize. Ask that you would continue to stand with them and shed uh, your mercy and grace upon them abundantly. We also pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine uh, who continue to face hardship, that you would continue to be with them, Lord, be uh, a bright light in a very dim situation. Be gracious to them. I pray the church would stand up there and be the church, uh, that you would use such a horrible situation to bring many people to know you. Let the gospel clearly go forth and be clearly seen by many unbelievers there, God. Lord, thanks for the privilege of your word. Thanks for the privilege of us being able to read it. Thanks for the privilege of us being able to hear it and for the privilege of us being able um, to see it uh, in the sacraments, Lord, and for the privilege of us gathering as brothers and sisters to sit under it this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are wrapping up 2 Thessalonians today, and one of the things I just want to briefly review is why 2 Thessalonians was written. Why was it written? Now, the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, were written uh, for us, and that's one of the reasons we're going to the Old Testament for a while, was because a lot of times, if we're not careful, we can just end up as like New Testament Christians uh, but there were believers in the Old Testament, and we can learn from that. And Paul repeatedly, and we'll probably look at it in, in the first week of looking at the Old Testament book, but Paul repeatedly talks about the importance of the Old Testament. Um, in order to understand what we would properly term biblical theology, we need to have the Old Testament, because God is working covenantally through the history of time to redeem a people for his own. Amen? 
So the scriptures were written for us. It's God's revelation to mankind, and, and within the scriptures, we see God's divine will revealed. Ultimately, why was it written? To convey the message of the gospel, to show God's history of redemption culminating where? In the history, in, in, the, in the resurrection of his son, and his son being crucified for our sins, and three days later, rising again. Then his son coming back to redeem the church for his own. So that, that's the kind of the ultimate. Then if you kind of say, okay, then what are some of the, the subcategories under that? Well, it would be to instruct us as believers. How should we then live? To build us up, to encourage us. I mean, who needs encouragement, right? I need encouragement. Uh, to address issues that are going on, to protect the church from bad theology, and to confront different issues, whether it's bad theology in terms of uh, practice or bad theology in terms of belief. So to confront it. And here's the thing, okay? If you're a believer, you're going to continue to walk with Jesus for many, many, many years, which I hope you do. Here's the thing. Some things never change. Some things never change. When it comes to the church and its place on this earth, there has been, always will be, and currently are false teachers, sadly, within the church. Uh, look briefly, we will get to looking at 2 Thessalonians, but look briefly at 2 Peter chapter 2. In verse 1 it says, But false prophets also arose among the people. Where did they arise? Among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. Where are the false teachers? Among us, right? Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Okay, what kind of heresies are they? Destructive. Even denying the master who bought them. Who's the master? Jesus. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Okay, so there's going to be false prophets that arise among the people. There's going to be false teachers among us. Even denying Jesus who bought them. And then look what happens. Though. What's the result of false prophets and false teachers among us? Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Many will follow their sensuality. And then what happens? Well, God's name is blasphemed. It's brought dishonor. And look, verse 3, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Okay, so there's all sorts of different hidden motives, all sorts of destructive heresies that are trying to be brought in. Satan loves that. He loves false teaching. He loves false prophets. They were alive and kicking back then. Guess what? They're alive and kicking today. Um, and if you think about it, I mean, how young was this Thessalonian church? You all remember? Maybe a few weeks, maybe a few months. 
very, very young church, and guess what happens? False teaching is already creeping in. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 1 it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so notice what he's talking about. A spirit or a spoken word, so some, someone among them speaking, or it goes on, a letter seeming to be from us. So, so different things are happening. People are getting up and giving false teachings, false prophecies. And even it appears that perhaps a letter was written claiming to be from the apostles and not being from them. So here we have false teachers had come into the church and created quite a stir teaching unorthodox things. Well, what's the result? Well, they're quickly shaken in mind. They're alarmed. Understandably, if you're talking about the return of the Lord and they think they had missed it, right? But false teaching creates uncertainty. It creates a restlessness. Why? Because it always gets our eyes off of Jesus. And if our eyes aren't on Jesus, what's the result? Uncertainty. Restlessness. We're not calmed in our spirit. Anytime we, we turn our eyes off of Jesus... We're just taking ourselves into a path of destruction that leads in all sorts of different directions. It's the destructive heresies that if we're not careful, we can be swayed by. So these false teachers, here's the thing. False teachers don't, don't come into a church and wear a name tag that says false teacher. Okay? They don't do that. They're smooth. They're winsome. They're convincing. There's a reason people are swayed by them. I mean, have you ever been in the presence, truly been in the presence, or heard someone, like, in the flesh, being present as a, as a false teacher? Like, you, you can find it, sadly, pretty easily on YouTube or uh, social media or wherever, but there's false teachers, and they are smooth and winsome. Now, some of them you see on TV, and you're like, wow, why can't people spot that a mile away? Okay? But here's the thing. What you can spot a mile away, others people couldn't spot if it was right in front of them. But, but there's also kind of a flip side that some people might be able to spot the thing that could easily sway you, the false doctrine that could trip you up. And they're saying, why, why can't that person spot that? Why that, can't that person see that? Okay? Because false teaching deceives. Satan is working with false teaching to deceive believers. And so the false teachers come along. I mean, why do they come along? I mean, part of it is the flesh. Like our sinful hearts desire all sorts of different things. So they're using their position for money, for power, for sexual exploit. And sometimes what happens is you have a person's desire to be a leader. 1 Timothy 3 says that's a good thing. That's a good thing to have that ambition. So a person has this desire to be a leader, but then they twist it 
to their own selfish desires. They want a following. They want adherence to their words instead of God's words. They want it for dishonest gain. They want it for authority and power. Some people love authority and power. Those people you should flee from. Some people love dishonest gain. Those people you should flee from. And they come along and they woo believers with fancy words or woo them with false words, and usually the fancy words are the false words. To combat it, you have to be grounded in the word. You have to be grounded in it. There was a mega church pastor. He was giving uh, his young protege four key pieces of advice. I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. Four key pieces of advice on starting uh, this new church plant that this uh, protege was starting. The first piece of advice was to drop all churchy language. He said, the Bible is old and dated. Try to use slang whenever you can. Now, we've been studying First and Second Thessalonians for over a year, maybe a year and a half, both those books together. It's, it's a brand new church, as you all know. And think about some of the words that Paul uses with the Thessalonians. Does he water down the truth? Is he using some type of slang or something? No, he's using biblical terms so that they can have biblical truths taught to them. Words like gospel, words like wrath, words like sanctification, words like glorification, words like righteousness, words like holiness. So think about that. This letter to new believers, and Paul is giving them the truth and the straight truth. He didn't say, oh, well, let's, let's water it down so we can reach more people. No, he gives it to them straight. So that was his first advice, drop all churchy language. Thankfully, Paul didn't follow his advice. Second, I don't even get this one all the way. Play golf with the key influencers more than you study. Now, it is interesting. I don't know how many golf courses we have in St. Charles County. It's like four or five, maybe more. <clears throat> um, I don't know anyone that plays golf on a regular basis, so I'd definitely fail in this area. Um, but play golf with the key influencers more than you study. He said, preaching doesn't matter. Just use sermons from other preachers and focus on hanging out with people. Okay. Um, so playing golf with influencers grows the church. Preaching isn't that important. That was his second piece of advice. Third one, <clears throat> put sports on all the TVs around the church campus if you have one. Now, that's not necessarily, I mean, a, a negative idea. I'm kind of a sports guy, <laughs> okay? But, but his four piece, key pieces of advice, the third one was put sports on all the TVs around the church. Um, yeah, not great. Men will come to church and hang out for that, is what he said. And then fourthly, make children's ministry a party if the kids have fun everyone comes back but here's the thing what's the problem with that with that last piece of advice what you win them with is what you win them to what you win them with is what you win them to so if you win somebody to your event they're going to be expecting an event each time and they're going to be expecting 
that next event because the same event gets old after a while, so they're going to be expecting the next event to be better than the last event. And eventually, the last event gets old, so they want something that's even greater than the last event, which was pretty great. So churches strive to go bigger, better, flashier, fancier. It is burnout waiting to happen. And in three to four years, that convert won to the event, moves on to the next church because he wants the next event. Or he just stops coming because there's no more events. And, 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 and brothers and sisters, this is what happens with youth ministry. What happens? It's all about the flash. It's all about the flash. Some youth ministries, I don't necessarily have a problem with this, but I was in a, in a church a few, a few months ago, and they had like five or six Xboxes and Nintendos and all those different things. Again, I don't have a problem with that. We don't have that here, but I don't have a problem with that. The problem is if that's what the focus of the youth ministry is. If that's what you have a, let's say, I don't know, an hour and a half or two hour block each week that you're intentionally working with those kids, and in that two hours, 90, uh, uh, 100 minutes is goofing off. They weren't, what, and what we're finding out, and, and, and one person said, we're finding out with student ministry, where the ministry is geared toward entertaining, wowing, and preoccupying kids, and then we, we take those kids and try to transition them to church, a regular church community, where then they're expected expected to do without the games and the skits and the bombardment of everything. And guess what happens? They stop going. Why? What you win them with is what you win them to. So they weren't one to a Christian community. They were one to the show. And guess what happens when there's no show? There are no shows. <laughs> and some of these youth ministries, the pastor literally has just a five-minute message. I talked to a gentleman a few weeks ago, sharing that they left their church. I was like, why are, you, why are you leaving your church? Like, you like all these different aspects to it. And he's like, my kids are getting to the age of going to the youth ministry. I went to the youth ministry, and it was like the biggest joke in the world. It was all fun and games, not the word at all. What you win them with is what you win them to. What people need is sound doctrine. They need sound doctrine. And that is one of the ways you combat false teaching. You teach sound doctrine. Look at Titus chapter 1. Here, Paul is writing to Titus and he's laying out uh, the qualifications for elders, elders and pastors, that's a synonymous term. He says in Titus 1.5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here he's laying out the qualifications. So there's character qualifications, but notice in verse 9, he has to hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. He's got to be grounded in the word. He's got to know it. Why? So he can give sound doctrine to the rest of the people so that he can ground them. And then notice also so that what? He can rebuke those who contradict it. One of the roles of the pastor, give instruction in sound doctrine. One of the roles of the pastor, rebuke those who contradict it. So here it's laid out for you the characters of the pastor and what he's supposed to be doing. Make sure your church has pastors like this. So the first thing is, is grounding people in sound doctrine. I would say the second way that we're uh, combating false teaching is actually just mentioned at the end of that verse, rebuke those who contradict the sound doctrine. That would be addressing the false teachers. What is, what is Paul doing in 2 Thessalonians? How would you address it and, and rebuke them? Well, you'd be starting to walk through the process of church discipline. And that's what chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians is about. In the context of work and people being lazy, but also referencing back to 2 Thessalonians 2, where there's false words coming in, false teachings coming in, a false letter coming in, and Paul saying, deal with it. Address it. Don't sweep it under the rug. I was thinking about this the other day. Guess what happens when there's issues that need to be addressed and you don't address them? Do they ever really go away? No, I mean, they really don't. And what normally happens? Those issues, do they get smaller or bigger? Bigger, okay? One of the probably biggest things I've learned in ministry the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years is like address issues as soon as you can. Because they only get worse, they only get bigger, they only cause more damage. That's a challenging thing to do because people just want to, okay, that's going to be a headache to deal with. Well, guess what? If you don't deal with it now, it's going to be two headaches to deal with, okay? Like, you got to deal with issues, whether it's in your home, whether it's in your work, whether it's at the church. You got to deal with issues. So how do you deal with bad theology in churches? Well, like I said, 2 Thessalonians 3 lays it out rebuking the false teachers, walking through church discipline. Notice also what, what 2 Thessalonians is addressing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we see Paul laying the foundation for encouraging them in regards to persecution. It says in verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians 1, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may, be, you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So the, the Thessalonians are being afflicted from the outside, from unbelievers, they are being afflicted. And, and it's saying that God's going to basically... Uh, afflict them back what in the great day of judgment ultimately they will receive their comeuppance so to speak but the thessalonians it's mentioned in first thessalonians and now it's mentioned in second thessalonians they're facing persecution from the outside people aren't happy that there's this little church down the street 
And people aren't just worshiping Jesus, they're only worshiping Jesus. Not just many gods, but just one God is what they're proclaiming. And they're causing all sorts of uproars as you read through the book of Acts, right? It causes all sorts of uproars when a community starts to get serious about following Jesus. So they're being afflicted from the outside, and this persecution is only growing and growing and growing. Well, guess what? Some things never change. Persecution has been part of the church since its inception. Persecution from the outside, and it will continue and will continue and will continue. Currently, in our culture at least, it's not physical persecution. There's no uh, physical violence completely yet. But threats and intimidation are doing a pretty good job. And throwing Molotov cocktails into pregnancy resource centers, that's pretty intimidating. And when our government does little to nothing about it, that's disconcerting. Now, as some of you know, June is Gay Pride Month. You know, the Bible says a lot about pride. It doesn't say anything positive about it. But I read this article, the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team, some of y'all maybe uh, baseball fans. Um, so this month, you know, they got little patches, you know, some of the baseball team, probably all of them, but at least some of them have little patches, uh, rainbow patches on their uniforms. And so the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team, some of the players um, didn't want to wear the patch. How do you think that went over? So they were interviewing uh, one, of the, one of the gentlemen, one of the players on the team. Here's what he said. This is a guy who's, who's standing up, okay, because he's going to come under fire. There's a, about, I think, four or five of them at least that, that I could um, see that were saying, hey, we're not going to do that. There's about, whatever, 25, 27 players on a team. Um, so about five of them said, hey, we don't feel comfortable, but he's the spokesman, so he's really going to come under fire. Here's what he says. A lot of it comes down to faith. So it's a hard decision because ultimately we all said what we want is them to know that all are welcome and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, re referencing like the patch, um, sometimes they had like the logo and, and the rainbow on the hat. I think a lot of guys decided that it's just a lifestyle that maybe it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior. He goes on, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage, it's no different. That's a guy who's standing up. He's taking a stand, and he's taking heat. So, so, so pray for him and the other players doing that. In one sense, it's kind of like, what's the big deal? They just don't want to wear a little patch, right? They want to wear a little patch on the uniform. <clears throat> because when it comes to the LGBTQIA, I think I got that right, um, it's not acceptable to just accept it. You have to promote it. You have to celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, if you don't promote it, if you don't support it, you're the problem. 
Here's what it says in 2 Timothy. You need to turn there because I want you to see it. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many? How many? Okay. All means all. Persecution will continue to increase in America. It's just the truth. If you're going to walk with Jesus... If you're going to do what this says here, all who desire to live a godly life, if you want to seek after him, if you want to be counted one of his, you will be persecuted. You should underline it and ingrain it and get used to it. But guess what? You're in good company. You're in good company. Our very own Savior was persecuted. Was he Mr. Popular? Not at all. Now, did they come to him for the loaves and the fishes and the miracles and the healings? Well, sure. But what turned them away when he got to the cold, hard truth and directed it towards their hearts? The same people crying Hosanna one day, a few days later, crucify him. So what do we do, brothers and sisters, as we're facing persecution? Let me just say, get on our knees. That's where we begin. Get on our knees. Persecution should bring us to our knees because remember, Ephesians 6, just listen to it. We do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. So what are we wrestling against? Well, it tells us the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is a spiritual battle that is where it's rooted how do we do spiritual battle with the spiritual weapons that we've been given ephesians 6 lays it out you can read that later but that talks about the armor of god right so we're on our knees praying we've got the sword of the spirit we've got our little shield of faith that we're holding up but we get on our knees we have nowhere to go and nowhere to turn but to the lord What's our temptation? Turn everywhere else. Listen, brothers and sisters, we cannot make it without Jesus. We can't do it without him. And we need him, and we need an open reliance on him. So get on your knees. And let me tell you one of the beautiful things about persecution, which is also true about trials and afflictions, when we're on our knees, when we're crying out to God and we're getting it from the outside, or maybe we just have trials and afflictions that are going on in our life. Growth happens. Growth happens in the midst of persecution and trials and afflictions if we are setting our eyes on Jesus. Because normally what happens is those afflictions and trials, that persecution, it drives us to the foot of the cross. And to cry out, Jesus, I need you. 
So the Thessalonians, as we've seen, what does the persecution, did, did that slow them down? Not at all. If anything, it spurred them on. They're growing and growing during the persecution. We can too. There's never, 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 never an excuse for us not to be growing. Never an excuse for us not to be growing in our walk with Jesus. So the Thessalonians, their spiritual growth took place in that context. Strong opposition from their fellow man. But the fact that the love of the Thessalonians was increasing, and remember Paul talks about like it's beyond all measure. I mean, it, 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 it's a sign that they are miraculously escaping one of the great snares that persecution brings. What's one of the great snares? The love of many will grow what? It's going to grow cold. Many will hate and betray each other, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24. They, by the power of God, had risen above that. We must too. You ever wonder why there is persecution? I mean, simply put, people hate God. I mean, that's the straightforward truth. People hate God. They hate what he stands for. They hate who he is. Look at John chapter 15. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. What did I say earlier? You're in good company. You are in good company. It goes on. If you were of the world, the world would what? Love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Notice, why does the world hate us? Because we are Jesus. What does it say? I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you because you're no longer part of the world. Remember the word that I said to you, verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Did they persecute Jesus? Some of them did, right? Then they're going to persecute us. So it's not that, that they hate you as an individual. You might be a really nice person, and, and some of you are. Okay, more than some of you. <laughs> I'm just making sure you're paying attention here. <clears throat> exactly. <laughs> but it's not that you're not a nice person. It hates Jesus, right? It hates Jesus. It loves its own. Okay, that's not the driver. The driver of them hating you is not you. It's that they hate God, they hate Jesus, and they hate what you are. And they hate who you are and what you stand for. Your life, if lived properly and righteously before God, your life is a statement of everything they are against. And your life is a statement of everything they don't believe in. Now that doesn't make it easier for us, but it, at least it helps us understand. Again, our fight 
is not against flesh and blood. And if you're with God, you become a target. You become a target of the enemy, but also of the world. It's like you got a little target on your back. Right? And what does Ephesians 6 talk about? The fiery arrows of the enemy. Right? And so, he, I mean, Satan's just out there and he's looking and he's just letting his arrows fly at the target. Well, where's the target? It's you. It's placed on your back. Every believer has a target on their back. The enemy is just looking to take you out. So he's, you know, oh, there's a new creation over there. Oh, take them out. He doesn't like new creations. He likes the fallen, the wicked, the evil. Think about Paul on the Damascus road. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Right? Paul, Paul is, is having a coming to Jesus moment, <laughs> literally. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, how did Paul persecute Jesus. Jesus wasn't on the earth anymore. Because you persecute the bride and you persecute the groom. So Paul's persecuting the bride, the church, believers. What's that a persecution of? Jesus himself. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is not ignorant of the persecution of his bride. Do you think he is pleased with it? Do you think it goes over well with him? Do you think he's standing idly by? Not at all. He's dealing with it in some form and fashion right now, and someday he will fully deal with it. But your testimony in the midst of it speaks strongly to a dying world. And guess what? Many of us were part of that dying world, right? And someone else's testimony spoke to us. And then Jesus snatched us out of that dying world, thanks to whoever shared with us, thanks to whoever's testimony we saw and heard, snatched us out and placed us into the kingdom of light. And guess what? Your testimony can do the same thing because there's people that need Jesus all around us. Just a few days ago, I was <clears throat> talking with an elderly lady and I was just like, what do I got to lose? This lady, if she doesn't know Jesus, she needs Jesus. And so I just started sharing with her. Found out her husband has weeks, maybe months at the most. He's going downhill. His time is drawn short on this earth. So here I am, and remember what I've said in the past. When you're sharing the gospel, you know, you're not just sharing with an individual. You have the potential, without even realizing it, to be sharing with an entire family. I'm sharing with this elderly lady, and hopefully she takes that message of truth and somehow communicates that to her husband. Hopefully she gets saved and communicates it. So we talked for about, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes, walked through the gospel presentation. It actually appeared that she probably was a believer. Guess what she, she told me as, as, I was, as we were kind of parting ways? Thank you for sharing with me. Thank you for sharing with me. We got to be the salt and light regardless of whatever comes our way. And my point is this. Don't get distracted from the mission. We still have a calling. We are salt and light. 
and people need Jesus. So we can't go home and lock the door and never go out. We can't just fortify ourselves and hide away our children until they're 18. People have tried it. doesn't work. We have a mission, and we have to stay on mission. So there's people out there, the lady's name I shared with, her name was Helen. There's people out there like Helen and her husband. They need Jesus. And there are people, some people, greatly opposed to hearing any message of truth of the gospel. But many people are open to it, at least listening, at least having a conversation. I encourage you to do so. And part of what we're seeing with everything going on in our society, you know, when I was reading about the Tampa Bay Rays, it was saying that they had had the gay pride uh, day or month or whatever. They've been um, whatever practicing it or recognizing it for 16 years. But I was like, man, you're talking 20 years ago. That wasn't like even a, a flavor or a thing. And we've just become like frogs in the kettle so accustomed and used to it we just think well that's where things have kind of been for a long time 20 years ain't that long we're, we're, we're shifting we continue to slide away but let me tell you what god is doing with his church and he's sifting it he's sifting it and he's sifting it through affliction he's sifting it through persecution We see people walking away, and that breaks my heart. People we know walking away from Jesus. Here's the question for you all. What will you believe? Will you believe the truth, or will you cave to the lies? And then how will you act? How will you walk out your Christian faith? How will you act and how will you react? Will you stand firm? Because God is sifting his church. Amos, this is what Amos says in chapter 9. <clears throat> God's not doing a new thing here. He says in Amos 9, For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all the nations. And that's what he did, right? Guess what? He's doing that today with his church. He is sifting. But it goes on, like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Right? So you got the, uh, the chaff, you know, and you're, if, you're, if you're winnowing it and you're tossing it up in the air, what happens? The good stuff, the grain, it's heavier, it falls down. What happens to the chaff? It's lighter, the wind catches it, blows away. What's real and true, God is saying, will remain and be with him. Brothers and sisters, make sure you are the grain. Make sure you're the grain. Is what we're seeing regularly now is the chaff being blown away. So what are we called to do? What is our mission? How are we to stay on it? It's discipling the nations. It's sharing the gospel. But guess what? We've got some competition. And it's Satan. Because guess what? What is he trying to do? He's actually trying to disciple the nations. 
through deception, through lies, through temptations. So how does he do that? Well, Revelation says, and threw the devil into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. What's he been doing? What is he doing until this occurs? He's deceiving the nations. So we must be prepared. Why? Satan, I mean, he's a teacher. He's a great teacher of lies and deception. False teaching is rooted in him. So we have to be prepared to combat it, to confront it, to rebuke it, and to stand against it. Finally, and this is an appropriate way to end, the letter ultimately points towards hope. And really, when you think about it, chapter 1 kind of deals with the persecution. And then, um, interestingly enough, many uh, times we always think in, in an American context that uh, the way a story goes is it kind of builds and it kind of builds and it kind of builds and it kind of builds, right? And then, and then you have the end, right? And then it's like this climactic ending. Yay. Um, but actually, back then, it, it really wasn't the way they would write things. There'd actually be Uh, almost like a crescendo to the middle, and that would point to the main thing, and then it would back away from it. So if you think about it, the persecution he's talking, and he's kind of building up, and then uh, chapter 3, when he's backing away from it, is talking again about church discipline and dealing with issues of laziness and lack of work, but what is in the middle that Paul has built up to? The return of Jesus. The return of Jesus. So Christ is coming back. And this has, and I want you to see it. This has to be, um, I mean, all the verses uh, of the Bible obviously are excellent. But this, if there was great ones, um, this has to be one of them. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Every time I read this, I'm like, this is amazing. Look what it says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I mean, we got this whole buildup. Don't be deceived about the coming of the Lord. All these different things are going to happen. There's going to be a rebellion. <clears throat> People are going to fall away. There's going to be this man of lawlessness that comes. And we're like, oh, wow, this is like awful stuff that's going to occur. And then he says, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then notice this. And then, verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed. You're like, oh man, this is going to be bad. Yes, it will be. But look what it says. Whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. I mean, Jesus comes on the scene and there's not even a battle to be had. You realize that? Just says he will kill him with the breath of his mouth. Like sometimes some words he's going to speak, like "be gone," "boom," "game over." There's not some, like think about that. Is there going to be like some climactic battle with Jesus? How would you even? I mean, that'd be crazy. It's not even thinkable. You try to attack Jesus, God Himself, and I just says, "Yeah, uh, this is how the battle's going to go." Jesus is going to open His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. He appears, opens His mouth. It's over. It's done. The man of lawlessness is taken care of. Now, the man of lawlessness is going to be doing some stuff while he's here. But guess what? Jesus shows up. Game 
over. Game over. Okay? Game over. Why? Because Jesus has the final victory. And Jesus is omnipotent. How, how are you going to try to attack an omnipotent being? Jesus, who is God. Jesus shows up on the scene. The end is here. The day of the Lord has come. We will be with him. We go back. Back to one chapter. <clears throat> verse 10. When he comes. Verse 10, excuse me. When he comes. Chapter 1. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be marveling. We're going to see Jesus in his glorified state. And look one verse earlier. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. That's the unbelievers. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But guess what? We'll be in the presence of the Lord and with the glory of his might. That's some great hope. And the Thessalonians needed that, and we need that. Just as much as Jesus was with them in their persecutions, Jesus is with us in our persecutions, whatever might come. He walks with us every single step of the way. He is with us every single step of the way. He will stand with us every single step of the way. Jesus is a faithful Lord. He is the faithful Lord who never, ever, ever lets us down. Not one bit. Doesn't let us down. Don't let Satan deceive you into thinking that. Jesus never lets us down. And one day, his word says over and over, he is coming back to claim his bride. And then he will deal out punishment to those deserving of it and deal out rewards to those deserving of it. We're deserving, if you are a believer, you're deserving of rewards, not because of what you've done, but because of whose you are. Found in Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb, you are in Christ. A beautiful thing. United with Christ through his death and through his resurrection. Because of that, you have peace with God. Because of that, you can walk through whatever might come. Because of that, you can stand firm, whatever might be thrown your way. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for all of us here. I pray for the church universal, that we would stand. Stand firm in the day of testing. Stand firm in the midst of affliction and persecution. I pray for wisdom from above for each person here and knowing how to walk in righteousness before you and the decisions they have to make and the in situations they encounter. Lord, on the, on the day that it comes and the day that it's here right now, may we be faithful to stick to you and to your word. And Jesus, we thank you that you are coming back. We look forward to that day. We see but through a glass dimly now, but then we shall see face to face. We look forward to seeing you face to face. It will be a most glorious day. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.